I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello, and welcome to episode 33 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Perry Carpenter. Perry currently serves as Chief Evangelist and Strategy Officer for Know Before. Previously, Perry led security awareness, security culture management, and anti-phishing behavior management research at Gartner Research, in addition to covering areas of IAM strategy, CISO program management mentoring, and technology service provider success strategies. With a long career as a security professional and researcher, Perry has broad experience in North America and Europe, providing security consulting and advisory services for many of the best-known global brands. His passion is helping people make better security decisions by applying strategic behavior and cultural management practices to the intersection of technology and humanity. Perry holds a Master of Science in Information Assurance from Norwich University in Vermont and is a certified Chief Information Security Officer. In this episode, we discuss his focus on the human side of information security, building a security culture, working with famous hacker Kevin Mitnick, rewarding users for reporting, changing users' behavior, how CISOs can affect change and evaluate products, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Perry, thank you for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm doing awesome. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So, Give the listeners a little bit more of a background of how you got started in information security. Yeah, so I got started as a programmer, actually. Um, it started out uh, writing C++ code, uh, did a few uh, interesting projects for a transportation company, uh, and then went to Walmart and ended up writing the email system that they used in the stores and clubs. And as uh, as part of that, there was a lot of directory work, identity work, and, and so on, and uh, Based on that, ended up running Walmart's first identity and access management program, and that was really my my first stepping stone into the security world. And this is back in uh, oh two thousand one ish. Um, a- after doing that for a while, uh, I took a sidestep and uh, ran a marketing and analytics program over at Sam's Club, uh, back under the Walmart umbrella as well, and then wanted to get back into security. So I. I uh, got hired as uh, I think the second or third hire when a uh, telco company named Altel was creating their first real security program uh, and ran enterprise security initiatives, security awareness and training, had a little bit of my fingers in the identity and access management pie, um, data leak prevention, mobile security, and and a few other things there. Uh, and. Um, when Altel got bought by Verizon, I had an opportunity to move over into uh, to Gartner because I had established a few good relationships there and then ran uh, some security research around identity and access management, um, a little bit into security program management, and really got to work with um, not only a lot of great people on the Gartner side, some of the, the uh, smartest people that I've ever worked with before, but also uh, – 
CISOs and security leaders and security practitioners around the world that are all trying to come together and solve the the issues that we struggle with daily. Um, and so that was a, a really uh, good and rich experience. Um, after that, ended up uh, going to Fidelity Information Services to help a friend uh, start a security program there. I should say restart a security program after they had a big breach in uh, 2011. And so we were on the ground really trying to work with the regulators and, and the clients and uh, really frame that up and make it world class. Um, and then went back to Gartner for a while. Um doing security awareness research, uh, a CISO mentoring program as well, uh, lots of roundtables, lots of, lots of deep in the weeds work with the, the CISO community. And then uh, most notably and, and most recently uh, came over to Know Before, uh, which specializes in security uh, training and security uh, phishing users, uh, a lot of really interesting technology behind all of that, uh, all about trying to shape the behavior and the decision-making processes of people. Um, and uh, that's landed me in the uh, chief evangelist and strategy officer position there, and I'm just having a, a great time with it. Yeah, you get to work with a, a rather famous hacker, at least for me, you know, I grew up in, in the 90s with cybersecurity kind of uh, as, you know, I think the kids today don't appreciate what we had to go through in those times oh, yeah. with hacking, and, you know, and with with everything that Kevin went through and the free Kevin movement and all the um, I was constantly following what was happening on Off the Hook and Twenty Six Hundred. Uh, but I, what I always found interesting about Kevin was is that, and still I think to this day, is that he's he's very adept technology with with technology, and he's very good at that. But his social engineering skills are, you know, the kind of high the high standard I think a lot of us in the community look at, and really he's able to kind of really hack at people. So can you talk a little bit more about the human side of infosec and why it's so important for organizations to focus on this area as well? Yeah, so I, I would say for at least the past 10 to 15 years, the human side of security has been um, one of the big passions that I've had as well. And so even back uh, when I was working at Altel and, uh, and Gartner and Fidelity, what I did in all of those organizations, along with the technical work that I was doing, was work on security culture and try to help people understand uh, the decisions that they're making, how behavior is a is a key component and a key layer of security, and how easily our brains are hacked. Uh, and and I've found a lot of interesting ways to get that point across and and. Uh, public types of uh, performances or speeches. I use a lot of uh, methodology that fake psychics have used and magicians use and uh, things like that. And, and it, what it really starts to do is show people how manipulatable they are and how quickly and how easily they can be um, pushed or they can be led into making decisions that aren't all that wise or aren't in the best interest of themselves, their families or their companies. Um, and I, I think Kevin really showed that extremely well um, all throughout his his career, both the, the, the career that landed him in some infamy and his, uh, his career on the right side of everything. Um, he also has a passion for really just saying, here here's where the human component of this lies and here's why technology alone will never be a fix for the problem. And it's because um, 
because of the nature that we have to help one another, um, to cover up our own mistakes sometimes, to be pushed into things based on um, a whole bunch of different motivators that we may have. Uh, and and so all of that is the, the baggage that we carry with us just as part of being human. And so we can be um, pushed into certain directions or led into certain directions by urgency or by reciprocity or by the social environment that we're in um, or by fear or a whole host of other things. And what what Kevin is good at and what, um, frankly, the, the people that are out to, uh, to cause harm to our organizations are good at is understanding all of those levers and playing them to their advantage. Um, and so we can never forget the fact that um, that the human side of this is a very critical layer within our security posture. Um, and it's a layer that ha- needs constant attention. This is an ongoing problem. And as we, uh, as we think about training humans to behave the way that we want them to, it's very much like uh, any other kind of training or any other kind of learning. You have to develop muscle memory and that that conditioning has to be continual or there's going to be atrophy. And with that atrophy will come the same problem that we were trying to fight in the first place. And I think you touched on it, too. It's it's a bit about the organizational culture. I, I just came back from doing four days of security awareness training at, a, at an organization and really trying to get them to understand from the user's perspective that the organization culturally is taking security uh, awareness seriously. But also on the point that I think you said a little bit, too, is this the mental part where people fall for phishing uh, campaigns uh, or fall for phishing attacks and are reluctant to want to report it. You know, they want to feel, oh God, I, I did something wrong. I feel bad. And that's usually where things continue to get worse. The hole keeps getting deeper when they don't report it. So right. how, how can organizations continue to kind of really build on their culture and get people to be part of the organizational risk management and understand that they have a part to play within the organizational security? So I, I think, and this is what I, um, try to work with clients on um, in every organization that I've been a part of and, and especially as part of know before um, I'm really big on the tone that the security department and the executive team takes with the employees. So when somebody messes up, let's say we send out a, a phishing test. So this is a simulated fish. They click on it. We are able to take a metric or we're able to direct them to training based on the behavior that they exhibited. Um, if they get redirected to training or if we need to intervene in some way and have a conversation with that person, the tone is critically important to that um, because people will, will shut down or they will take a, a – and many times even the, the opposite type of response that we're trying to get if we approach them in the wrong way. So the way that I like to approach this is really thinking about it like – Uh, a concerned parent would or a concerned family member would, where we want to come alongside that person and say, hey, here's why why we do these things, and here's why we have the controls that we have in place. And it's not just because we were trying to be the company that says no, but it's because this is for your benefit and and our benefit. And if we were to, um, to just let behavior happen the way that, that it naturally does and uh, allow, 
this to continue, here are some of the negative effects that come with that. Um, so it's, it's all about the tone that you take with them, um, I believe, because you're hitting people in a very sensitive time when they realize that they've messed up. And we can either make that a, a positive learning experience for them, or we can make that something that makes them want to hide it even more the next time. And that's what we want to avoid. We want to have a culture of openness within our companies so that people can surface the security issues that they're seeing, whether that's phishing or whether that's the wrong person walking through the hallway that they don't recognize or whether that's um, an activity that they've seen that they don't really feel all that good about. It's the self-reporting mentality that we have to continue to reinforce so that people can bubble up those issues. And what, what I've heard some organizations, too, will further incentivize that, you know, along that kind of carrot and stick uh, incentivized uh, mentality. You can either punish people, reward them, but actually even rewarding people for reporting things and being the first to report either to a department and maybe giving out gift, gift certificates or doing things to get people kind of more excited about, you know, self-reporting. Have you right. seen that, that those programs work? I, I've seen them work and I've seen them not work at the same time. So the way that I would think about it is um, giving somebody a reward at the wrong level um, can backfire. So if you have somebody that's making six figures a year and you give them a $5 Starbucks card, they're probably not going to respond to that as well as maybe somebody that's making $25,000 a year and then they get something and they get some recognition. Um, the, the other thing that I've seen go wrong is that I would say um, reward without relationship can feel repulsive. And so if I'm rewarding somebody or giving them a pat on the back and they don't feel like I actually care about them and it's just a process, then that can turn them off to the entire system and, again, can have, the, can have a backlash effect. So I, I come back to reward without relationship can be repulsive. Um, and what I need to do in order for my reward system to work is actively invest in the employee base or the, the, the base that I'm speaking to. Let them know that I care about them. Let them know that I care about their family, their well-being, and that, that I'm glad that they're there. And then at the right time when they do the right thing and I give the recognition, then it's going to have the, the effect that we're wanting to, which is to continue to build the, the culture, continue to build the excitement about doing the right thing and have people that, that uh, really show extreme loyalty in that because they understand their place within the organizational uh, culture. Sure. Now, as far as, you know, the, the trends that go through with what you guys have seen at, at, at Know Before and, and your other work, are we making improvements in getting, in, in a maybe a larger, broader stroke sense, getting people to click less and open up less attachments? Are, is the training and phishing campaigns in organizations, uh, are, are they becoming more effective now? Yeah, they're becoming more effective because we're in... Um, we've gone through multiple generations of what security awareness can and should look like. Um, I don't even like the term awareness, but it's the term that the market uses. So I, so I use it. I use the, the term security culture management when I'm really working with a client. 
because it's not just about putting information in front of people. It's about uh, working with the behavior and, and within the social context of the people that are there. Um, so when it comes to the program, um, there's a few different components. Some is some of the traditional information that we give people. But we realize that information that's given without proper context is likely not going to change behavior. Um, so I can't just have, say a person plus information equals the desired actions and beliefs of that person uh, because people are neurologically influenced by tons of other things other than just the information that I give them. Um, they're they're, they're uh, affected by their worldview. They're affected by whether they had a fight that morning. They're affected by how stressed they are, what their financial situation is like, um, the culture of the division or department or region that they're working in, um, their past successes and failures, their, uh, their future aspirations for the, where they want to be in the company. All of that stuff comes together and creates the, the mental picture that we're dealing with with a person. And so if I just give information outside of context and outside of any other referential points, then I, I may have created awareness, but that awareness doesn't ne necessarily translate into action or caring the same way that I might be aware of a speed limit sign when I pass it going faster. And I just don't care because I'm making an internal risk calculation based on all of those other factors that I mentioned. Um, and, and so we got to work with that. We also have to work with the way that conditioning happens, and that's where you get into simulated fishing and social engineering and uh, and all of the automated things that we can do. Um, and so you you asked a very pointed question: Do we see uh, better results now than we used to? Um, and I'll I'll answer that uh, in as direct of a way as I can. And it would be that if we go into an organization cold that's never done any of this before then we can guarantee that the base level response rate for a simulated phishing email is going to be in the 15 to 25% range. And that's for uh, non-sophisticated phishing emails. Basically, um, you, you could almost send a little bit of text that says, please click on my happy phishing link. This is going to do bad things to you and your computer. And most people click on it because their internal conditioning is they see a link, they click on it because they want more information. They don't even think about it. The same way a lot of us just dismiss dialog boxes that pop on, up on our computer and we don't even know what it said. We just click OK. Um, they do the same thing with links. So the only way to, to break that cycle is to, um, to interrupt it. Um, in, in hypnosis, which is one of the other areas that I've studied, there's a, a really great tactic to uh, form induction, which is called a pattern interrupt. And so that same thing carries over into behavior management. If we want to change behavior, we first have to interrupt the pattern. We have to get them to actually stop and think before they, they do an action. And the way to, to start that cycle for them is to be interruptive in the way that it happens. So they click the link, you redirect them to something that says, oh, sorry, you, you made a choice that was unwise. We're not, not punishing you because of that. We're not doing anything else. We're not even trying to make you feel bad. We're just trying to make you conscious of the decision that was just made. And then um, in a lot of cases, we want to show you exactly what should have set you off 
so that you're now um, you're now at least aware of your unconscious behavior and your unconscious incompetence. And you've now moved from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. And then you want to move to um, conscious competence where you have to think about what to do and then ultimately get it to where it's uh, an ingrained behavior, which is that conscious or, or sorry, unconscious uh, competence. It happens without even thinking about it. Um, so for that 15 to 25 percent in going in cold, um, the way that you, you work through that is you change it over time. And the key to remember is that you will only see sustained results when you have sustained programs that continue to get that person to flex the muscle. Uh, again, we don't want to go to atrophy because over time that baseline will start to raise because they're not seeing uh, the, the interrupts happen. They're not seeing the, the natural consequences of the behavior. Um, and, things will just start to to naturally go the direction of normal human behavior again. Yeah, it's really, it, it comes down to really getting people to change their behavior uh, at that unconscious level. And where I've also seen it go too far the other way is, is almost too aggressive ca campaigns where they try to push so much information about security uh, right. towards the user base to the point where they become uh, kind of tone deaf to it. And it has even a more of a negative effect. <laughs> so it, it's trying exactly. to find that balance. It's always an interesting uh a place to be. Exactly. There's um, there's a a persuasion researcher out of um, California, uh, and he runs the Stanford uh, Persuasion Lab. His name is B.J. Fogg, and he really hammers on the fact that if we want to change behavior, you can only focus on two to three behaviors at a time. And so in the case that you mentioned where we're just throwing information at people, um, there's, there's sometimes a good reason to do that. Sometimes you might need to throw information at people because um, a regulator is telling the, you that you need to and you just need to check the box. Um, so in those cases, you might need to uh, expose people to large amounts of information. But for people that are interested in changing security culture, you have to say, yes, I'm gonna do that and here are the things that I really want to do in order to drive people to behave the way that I want them to do, uh, to, to behave and to, to affect the entire culture the way that I want to. Here are the three behaviors that I'm interested in changing, and here's my plan on changing those. So it's kind of a yes and in some cases, but uh, where, where people can get away with not subjecting people to too much information and just focus on behavior, that's going to have the best result because they're not going to see security as an externality anymore that, that has information and touch points with them that are irrelevant to their day-to-day -day lives. Gotcha. No, that, that definitely makes sense. Yeah, you, do, you don't want to try to change too much just as you would uh, with technology. You know, you don't want to go in and, and start putting in too many different solutions. The same thing with people. You, you want to take kind of a measured and metered approach. Exactly. And with, you know, with a lot of this certainly comes the, the aspect that, you know, you need good leadership involved in this. And we've kind of seen the rise of the CISO or CISO in, in kind of go through these changes. And I've been talking to different guests about their perspectives of it. And you certainly seem like you've worked with a lot of global CISOs um, over your course of your career. How do you see that there's commonalities in different cultures with some of the CISOs you've worked with and where there might be some differences based on geography and, and different, different backgrounds they might have? Um, 
Yeah, that's that's a good question. I don't know that I've thought about it the way that you phrased it, but uh, but now that you you say it, there's definitely some cultures where an authoritative approach can work, um, and some places where an authoritative tone does not work. So, um, for instance, in the U.S., if I come at you with an authoritative tone on something, you're you're likely going to have the counter response of what I actually want. I'm not going to be able to scare you into being secure, and I'm not going to be able to say it's just your duty, so you need to act this way. Um, some cultures and even some regions of the country or some uh, some subpopulations within a company might respond well to that. But, um, but in general, what I've found um, globally is that 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 approach of saying we're trying to do this for your own good um, and to help you to uh, to understand the reasons why this behavior is important that seems to be a, a fairly universally accepted approach. Um, the, the the changes where I see the most dynamics are really in uh, it, it's not regions of the world. It's verticals of the the industries that we work in. Um, for instance, financial services and healthcare can have different ways that they approach security training and the expectations around that than, uh, say, retail and manufacturing. Um, and, and that's because the the former were pushed there by the regulatory community. And they've trained people over a couple decades of we just have to do this in order to uh, to pass the audit. That's got a positive effect and a negative effect with it. One is um, culturally within those organizations, you can put lots of stuff in front of them and they just know that they have to do it. Um, the negative effect is that they've got so much stuff in front of them that they they might not care. Um, and so. Uh, again, with that, there's a there's a double-edged sword, and you have to answer the question of, am I trying to just solve the regulatory problem, or am I trying to, to work on behavior and culture? Um, and so you can't get lost in what you're actually trying to accomplish with that. You have to set your goals, your objectives accordingly to, to what you're willing to put in the effort to achieve. And with that, too, you know, it kind of goes – you know, maybe as, as a tail end of that is where the CISA lives with inside the organizational chart. You know, it sounds like what we're starting to see is different verticals are going to have different places for that CISA where for a while we were saying, well, you know, maybe it shouldn't be under IT. It shouldn't be an IT function. Mm -hmm. Maybe in some organizations it should be. What's your kind of view on where the CISO should kind of live in the organization? Um, I like the CISO living outside of IT and if possible, a direct report to the CEO. Um, and I think that that's borne out by some of the uh, the recent uh, moves, and, and by recent I mean within the past five years, uh, moves by like the National Association of Corporate Directors and uh, other organizations that are talking about the um, the board access that uh, is needed between the the CISO and the board. Um, and so there's there's definitely um, a much tighter line of communication that's being. Uh, seen as best practice now. And I think that if you have a CISO that's um, too far removed from the CEO, 
then the importance of that function starts to get siloed a little bit. It's, oh, the CISO operates within the scope of technology. Well, and that maybe that makes sense because of the I in, uh, in the acronym, but in reality, today's CISO um, has a lot more in common with a traditional chief risk officer and blended into technology than just a siloed technology-based function. Um, and a lot of that's because of the fact that we realize that um, the implications of security bleed out much farther than just a technology silo. They, they affect people's lives. They affect the ability of the business to continue. Uh, they affect a, a customer. They affect our stockholders. They, 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 there's there's a, a range of ripples that come out of the effects of what we do and, and don't succeed in, when it comes to securing technology that just can't be ignored or siloed. Yeah, I think the way that I've been trying to view that role with inside organizations and, and either help people or assist within that role is say, look, it's, you know, technology is a part of it, maybe a third, um, but it's it's really about managing risk around your information, around critical information and being able to communicate that to the board level and to the C-suite right. um, and where those communication skills become very important. Um but the challenge, what we're, I think we're seeing in the industry too, is that there's just so many people that have been kind of grown out of IT that might ne not necessarily have the best communications or business risk analytics skills, um, and they kind of find themselves in a, in a tough position when they're put in that role and kind of maybe fall back a little too heavily on their IT roots. Right. Well, and and um, so I've worked with a lot of those people, um, and uh, even I, in uh, one of my stints at Gartner. Um, I chaired the uh, Identity and Access Management Summit and had a, a decent amount of influence into the Security and Risk Management Summit as well. And one of the things that I always pushed for um, for our keynotes was we need a communications expert to come in and work with people. And even when we did roundtables um, with smaller groups of CISOs, it was we need a communication uh, person to come in and help people with their soft skills because that's really where um, where this group is being pushed. And what we're starting to see now is that business leaders are coming over and taking on the mantle of CISO or, or chief risk officer. But for this legacy group of uh, CISOs that have been uh, kind of born out of the technology silo, um, they're, they're hurting. And they can it's kind of a sink or swim type of thing and the the thing that can't afford that we that none of us can afford to have happen is for that position to be relegated to oh that's just the technology guy we don't need to listen to him uh, or her we we need to uh, instead get those people where they're able to have conversations at the level that they need to have conversations in use business-friendly and business-savvy terms, not just technology terms, and speak in ways that are not just related to security and technology, but get into the fundamentals of the levers of how the business and how the organization operates so that we're not just talking about security in the abstract. We're talking about the implications of the decisions that we are about to make as it relates to uh, company stability company profitability, the 
impact that we're able to have on our customers, both in the positive and negative sense and, and so on. And it's when people can have the conversation at that level that they start to get invited to the table for broader and more far-reaching discussions as well. And so that's where we've got to get. Um, and we're starting to see that happen now, but it can certainly uh, progress much farther. Yeah, and it certainly be, I, I think what I try to emphasize with a lot of these folks is that, you know, you're, you're going to need budgets, you're going to need purchasing power, and you need to speak the same language as the people that write the checks. <laughs> and, and being able to sit at the table and speak their language becomes very, important, very important. And so there's something I noticed in your bio that, that said you covered this, this, the CISO's perspectives on purchasing while you were at Gartner. And I'm kind of curious what what you learned from that, um, you know, particularly because it is such a hot industry now and there's product everywhere. Now, how should CISOs evaluate solutions and what questions should they be asking when they're making purchases? Yeah, so so for me, one of the, the fun jobs that I had in that respect is I would work with the security vendor community and they would give me their pitches uh, about what their product did and uh, and so on. And then I would get to play the role of a, of a CISO that they're pitching it to. Um, and what it came down to a lot of times is that from the CISO's role, um, you have to address a couple of things. One, if I'm a, if I'm a CISO, you need to tell me how I'm going to sleep better at night. I don't care about all the blinking lights. I don't care about anything else, but how does this make me feel better about the security posture of the organization and know that I'm not going to be in a war room at 3 a.m.? Um, so if, if you can address that, then you have another five to 10 minutes of my time. Um, the, the other thing is don't talk about the technology that you're bringing in in the abstract. Um, you see this with a lot of security startups is they just come in talking about the technology, but what they don't do is link that to the actual problem that they're trying to help address. And until you get somebody sold on the problem, you can't sell them on the, the technology. And so um, w with that, it always had to be tied to a, a problem that was spoken of in English terms, not the, you know, not the technology's vendor's terms, especially um, not a market that they've created for themselves. Um, so it's tagging it with things that are already familiar within the CISO's mind um, and, or an area where they can create a, a good dotted line connection. Oh, this is like that. Um, and, and so for, for me, if I'm a, a vendor and I'm trying to uh, really understand the security leader's mindset. It's knowing that this person does not have infinite knowledge over every market and every technology. What their goals are, though, um, should be tied to business objectives and, and business levers. And the ultimate goal is how do I give that person peace of mind within the context of how the business is being secured? Does that make sense? That, that totally does. I mean, it's it's you know sometimes I would I, be, being having sat through enough webinars and uh, product pitches you know at, at a certain point you just want to say what problem are you trying to solve and why do I care and sometimes exactly. I just try to try to lead with that because it does you know you do death by PowerPoint of showing all the clients they've served all this it's like okay let, let's get to the meat and potatoes of what, what does your product actually solve what problem and it's amazing how many um, product vendors kind of get thrown off by that question. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so um, one of the uh, 
the things that I did at Gartner and, and of course, living on the vendor side now, um, I've spent a lot of time looking at how uh, the future of marketing and future of sales can and should impact the security technology industry. And a lot of it is just people are doing their own research now. Usually when they come to a vendor, they've already done one, two, three, uh, three rounds of initial research on their own. They may have spoken to an analyst. They, uh, they've done some, a little bit of, of networking-based research. Uh, they've pulled down white papers. They've, they've done a lot of things. The last thing they need from a vendor is a pitch in the abstract. What they will respond to, though, is uh, a vendor that's willing to get on the phone, um, spend a couple hours with them, doing a deep dive and to try to help solve a problem and a collaborative consulting based approach. And if a vendor does that really well, then they're on the way to a sale. But it does mean I'm going to give away my time and I'm going to give away my expertise because I actually have an interest in this potential client solving a problem well, whether they pick me or not. Um, but it's the relationship that, that really matters. Right. I think it's it's coming to the client and trying to say, okay, we, I want to be a partner with you on this. I'm not just trying to sell you something. Exactly. And um, for me, on the vendor side, um, and I shouldn't say it this way, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it in the way that, that I feel it in my gut, is if I'm working with a potential client, then I, I do not and I should not care whether they actually buy the product. What I do care about is whether they're making the right decisions for their company and they're setting themselves up for the best possible success that they can have. Um, so again, I hesitate to say that being a vendor, but that's the only way that I feel like I can be successful in talking with people, um, both who are clients and who are not clients, is to actually be invested in their personal success, whether they're, uh, whether they're on board or not. Oh, certainly. And, th and those are the types of clients that come back to you time and again, even if they don't buy from you then, or, you know, you, you build that relationship on, on kind of an, an honesty within their best interest. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the other things that I, I noticed you did that was kind of interesting too, is you have the mind spy guy. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that got started? Oh yeah. Um, so that, that comes out of my trying to understand basic human nature. Um, I've, I've always been a little bit of a geek and a little bit um, of somebody that's interested in things like magic and perception and all of that. Um, but when I really started getting into security and the, the social side of things, you know, the brain side of why we make the decisions that we do when it relates to security, it it gave me the opening to bring all those aspects of my childhood, my adolescence where I liked magic, gave me permission to bring that into my professional life because the reasons we make the decisions when we do in respect to security are really the, the same reasons that as a magician or a fake psychic or as a hypnotist, I can lead people on the journey that I want to lead them on. And so all these things from a social engineering perspective – can be put into the same context of like a, a, a fake psychic or a magician or a hypnotist that's using misdirection or indirection or inference or um, different areas of sleight of hand or pickpocketing techniques and, and things like that. So uh, what, I, what I did is I 
started a little um, basically a way for me to go talk about that in front of anybody that I wanted to. Uh, it got a lot of uptake with uh, law enforcement and uh, the corporate uh, environment of saying, hey, you know what? We need somebody to give a keynote that's not going to be just dry and talk about security or talk about persuasion, but we want them to have an interesting take on it. And so uh, what I have done in those contexts is I get up and I, I basically say, um, let me show you uh, a few things that I've learned um, over the career, my uh, over my security career. And that is that we can spend as much money as we ever want to on technology, but somebody that is malicious or somebody that is ignorant can basically waltz through all of that technology spend and cause us to have a really bad day. So now, why is that the case? What are the, what are they exploiting in us? How does that happen? And let me show you some very physical examples of that within the next 45 minutes. And so we'll get into um, things that are mind reading like, things that are uh, influence and hypnotic like. Um, I, I go through and at the very beginning say, you know what, I'm going to lie to you um, in a number of ways throughout this. And uh, I talk about the fact that I can show them how to create a, a belief system within three steps that that will take within 20 or 30 minutes. Um, I usually, uh, well, actually every time I've been successful in doing that because at the very end of the presentation, um, almost like the end of The Usual Suspects, that, that movie with Kevin Spacey a long time ago, I backtrack them through everything that I did and say, did you notice this? Did you notice this? Did you notice this? What are the conclusions that you um, took out of that? And then I uh, show them the wrong conclusions that they came to based on the misdirection that was there. And then I show them how I actually influenced them to have that belief. Um, so that's that's a lot of fun. Um, and it's it, it really fits well within the security context. And it is it's a, a really good example of social engineering within uh, 30 to 60 minutes that uh, is tangible for any level of audience. Oh, that sounds really cool. Yeah, it, it makes me think of certainly situations to where I have seen very successful uh, phishing campaigns or spear phishing campaigns that have just used uh, just well-timed and, and well-thought-out almost in a certain way. I almost have a little bit of dark envy for these these some people sometimes. But where you know there was a client that had all their... Uh, employee uh, W2s leaked out and right. the attacker basically said, you know, went spoof the email to come from the executive assistant's boss, send it to the executive assistant late on the day on a Friday, mm -hmm. you know, getting her when she's ready to get out of, get out of the office. Hey, I need you to send all this stuff. And into the technology aspect that I thought was really interesting. He asked her to encrypt it with a password. So it went out right. of the PDF. So if there was any kind of outbound DLP protection or anything that could have been filtering it, it was going to walk right out anyway. And by the time we, we got the call on it, I was like, wow, that, there's really nothing we can do. The horse is already out of the barn. But it was just so so well played in getting somebody to do something that they they knew that was probably bad at the time to do, or at least question. But it was just getting their guard down and getting them to kind of expose themselves in a way that they didn't want to do. Yeah, there's actually – so the – the, the example that I do in the, the talks that I give that's similar to that is um, 
I, I will basically force people to all come across, come to the same decision. So there's, let's say, seven different options they could have, but I can get an entire audience to come to the same conclusion, and it's based through um, through urgency and psychological bullying that they don't even really realize is happening until I untangle it for them. With this W-2 example, uh, late in the day on Friday, um, so there's there's urgency, there's that person wanting to get out the door, just kind of finish the, the last thing, there's that little psychological bullying, um, there's the, the authority structure that's there, I need this to happen because of X, you're giving them a reason why at the same time, and then you're also giving them a little bit of comfort at the same time too. Oh, please encrypt this. Um, so that there's some misdirection and that, yes, you're doing the right thing. We're helping you do the right thing. Um, and all of that comes together in the perfect way to, uh, to cause a very bad day for a company. Yeah. They had a long weekend. <laughs> yeah. Well, Perry, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today. Uh, where can people find you? What, where are you online? So, uh, for no before just, uh, K N O W B E com. And if you're wanting to look at some of the MindSpy stuff, then that is just themindspyguy.com. Great. I'll be, uh, I'll be sure to put all those in the show notes uh, so people can find you online. All right. Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed the talk. As have I. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.